It is so wonderful to be back. It's so delightful to be back. We have a new Parsha this week, Parshas Achremos. Over the past two weeks, it was Pesach. So there was no new Parsha, and thus really no new Parsha podcast. Of course, I had withdrawal symptoms over Pesach, as I am sure that you did as well. I couldn't help myself. The truth is, we came here, we snuck into the Torch Center, and we actually had two new episodes over Pesach. Of course, they weren't related to the new Parsha because there was no new Parsha, but I just couldn't help myself. And now we're back with a new Parsha, a new Parsha podcast. Pesach is over and behind us. We are in middle of the Omer. Today's day number 11, and we're counting towards Lag Omer, of course. And ultimately, to Shavuos, to the festival that commemorates the giving of the Torah at Sinai. It's the dog days of the school year. I told my kids, I said, listen, it's just six more weeks. You can handle it. It's almost over. The light at the end of the tunnel is visible. I actually had a meeting this week in the school with the principal about one of my kids who, to protect the innocent, will remain anonymous. And I said to him, I said, listen, it's just six weeks more. So he told me that one of the teachers had come in that day and says, oh, there's just 33 more days. That's all we need to endure. That's it. 33 days left. School is almost over. We're planning out our annual drive that we do to the Northeast. I hope, of course, to not miss a Parsha podcast over the course of the summer. I'm not going to travel anywhere without the mics and the paraphernalia. Now, I figured I'd throw this out because we have a very large and diverse audience here at the Parsha Podcast. Regarding our annual drive, I am in the market for a 12 or maybe even a 15-seater van to accommodate our, thank God, growing family. So let me know if you have any leads on that. Of course, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. But we're back. We're in the Torch Center. We have a new Parsha. We have an exciting idea that will probably change your life in a very radical and improved fashion. So let's begin. I want to focus on a verse that I have a particular affinity for. A verse in our parsha, chapter 18, verse 5. The verse says, Ushmartem is chukosai, you should guard, you should observe my statutes, ves mishpatai, and my laws. This is, of course, God talking. We should observe the Almighty's statutes and laws, the Torah. Asher osam ha'adam, v'chai bahem ani Hashem. That when a person does them, when a person does the mitzvot, the commandments, the statutes, and the laws of God, through that, a person receives life. I am Hashem. God promises, you do the mitzvot, you will get life. What an interesting and intriguing verse. Now, as a, as a sidebar, I mentioned I have particular affinity for this verse. It's not a Jewish thing to say this is my favorite verse in Scripture. We don't assign hierarchy to the Torah. After all, it's all divine. And therefore, we cannot say this one is better than the other. In fact, the Talmud tells us in the book of Erevin on page 64a, 
If someone says, well, this part of Torah is really delightful, is wonderful, and this one, well, not as great. That person loses the treasure of Torah. Now, there is a discussion whether or not saying that I have a favorite verse is also a problem or it's only a problem and you only lose the treasure of Torah when you say this I like and this I dislike. But regardless, the principle is definitely true that we don't want to give the impression that the Torah is not divine and therefore this one really is important, this one's not important, and therefore we say that you have an affinity for a given verse. It's not your favorite verse. Now, why do I have a particular affinity for this verse? Because these words, the words of this verse, V'chai b'hem ani Hashem, you should live through them, I am Hashem. That was the title of the first book that I wrote in Hebrew, V'chai b'hem. There's a tradition to hint at the author's name in the title of the book that they write. So the word V'chai b'hem, the words, and you shall live through them. The word vechai is spelled a vav, and then a ches, and then a yud. So my name, of course, is Yaakov Walby. In Hebrew, there isn't a W. So if you want to write the W sound, you do a vav instead, or really two vavs. And of course, my first name is Yaakov, that's a yud. And my wife's name is Chaya, that's a ches. The word vechai has the three letters of my name, my first name, and my wife's first name and our last name. And also there are other connections to my name with this. So I wrote a book, a short little book a long time ago in Hebrew, actually on this, uh, or using this word or this verse as the title. And in fact, one of the main subjects of the book, that's why I have particular affinity for this verse, but let's study it in detail. The verse is telling us that if you guard the Almighty statutes and you observe his laws, if you keep the Torah, you will get life. Why ought we to guard the Almighty's statutes and laws? To live. What an amazing verse. Torah and mitzvos are synonymous with life. Now, this is an idea we find in many places in Jewish literature. Here's an explicit verse in the Torah. In the evening prayer, we said, that this is our life, etc. There are many citations. For example, the Talmud Baruch Brachos tells us that when a person is righteous and they do mitzvot and they study Torah, well, then even when they're dead, they're actually still deemed alive. But this is a, a theme, a motif found in many places in Jewish literature that life is synonymous with Torah and mitzvot. Now, the question on this verse is, of course, obvious. This does not seem to be replicable in the real world. We have a replication, a reproducibility crisis. How so? The verse tells us, if you do Torah and mitzvot and guard the laws, the statutes, and fulfill all the instructions of God, well, you'll have life. Yet, we see people, many people, who are wicked, who disobey, who neglect, who ignore the word of God, yet seem to be alive and well. They're robust. They are healthy. People don't even know about Torah and about mitzvot, yet seem to be totally fine, brimming with life. And yet, on the other hand, conversely, we see many righteous people who steadfastly adhere to the Torah and its dicta, and they're ill, and they're sickly, 
And of course, the state of man is that we can't live around forever, so we die. Where is this life that the Torah promises? The verse tells us, it's a verse in scripture, our parasha. You do the mitzvos, you guard the mitzvos, you obey the mitzvos, you adhere to the mitzvos, and you will live. V'chaibam, you will live. Yet we don't see that to play out in the real world. There is no discernible life expectancy differentiation between those who adhere to the mitzvos and those who neglect them. Maybe, maybe there is. I don't know. I've never done, I've never seen any research to that effect. And just from what we see, people seem to be living just as well, even if they don't have Torah. So what is the meaning of this verse? That's the question I want to explore. So, of course, if you have a basic question on any verse, the first place you look at is Rashi. And Rashi, really, in effect, asks our question. And you shall live with them, says Rashi, two words, that is reference to Olam That's reference to the upcoming world, the next world, the afterlife. That is when this is going to be fulfilled. Because if you say, that this is going to be fulfilled in this world, but in the end, everyone dies. And therefore the verse, says Rashi, cannot be referring to life in this world, because even if you do live a long time, well, no one lives forever. Even if you live to a thousand years, you still die at the end. And therefore, how could you say that there's life? How could the Almighty say that I'm going to give you life when it is only temporary? The Torah does not speak in half measures. It does not accord half rewards. If someone has temporary life, that cannot be a fulfillment of the verse promising life. And therefore, says Rashi, it must be referring to Omaba, to the eternal life in the afterlife after a person dies and after maybe Messiah comes and after resurrection. There is an upcoming world. And what exactly this means is a subject of great debate and controversy. But everyone agrees there is an upcoming world that is the eternal world, the life that has no death with it, and that is what is referred to. If you do the mitzvos, if you obey the Almighty's instructions, you are following the recipe, the prescription to earn eternal life in Olamaba. Now, I will tell you, I'm sure you all know this already, on my desk here, I have a book titled Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp, and that's authored by yours truly. You know that already, right? I'm sure most of you already have purchased your copy, but you'll forgive me if I read the beginning of the book, just the introduction, because that's really what the book is about. It's about the afterlife. And I begin the book, quoting a verse in Bracious, in the beginning of Genesis, that talks about in the aftermath of the sin of Adam, and God banished Adam, and he stationed cherubs, angels, on the east of the Garden of Eden, and the flaming, turning sword to guard the path of the tree of life. So the book begins with Adam being booted from the Garden of Eden, and being demoted in a very dramatic fashion, And then I quote the Midrash that talks about Adam trying to get back in. He was so disappointed and so dejected and so 
despondent and forlorn, this is a quote, despondent and forlorn, Adam resolved to find a way back in. After searching in vain, he stumbled upon a cave that bore the distinctive aroma of the garden and began digging furiously, searching for an entrance, for a portal. Maybe he can finally return home. Amidst his excavations, a heavenly voice thundered, Stop! You may dig no further. Adam had discovered one of the entrances of the garden, but again, his entry was denied. Okay, it feels weird. I feel like I'm doing my... uh my audiobook. Should I do an audiobook for this book? I don't know. It's weird to be here in the Torch Center, in the room by myself, in the studio, just recording, and uh, knowing that you're listening. But anyhow, that's the book. Go buy it if you haven't done it. And send me an email if you think I should do an audiobook. But if you look at the way Rashi reads this verse, he's telling you, hey, Adam was kicked out of the garden and therefore he had no access to the tree of life. And the only way to get back in, to get back to that eternal life that was lost with Adam's sin, the only way is with the portable tree of life. And that is, of course, that's Torah. Torah mitzvos. Well, those are our keys of admission to get back into the garden, to get back to that life that idyllic utopian life of way it was life without death. Now, I will point out, I'm trying to weave in all the plugs here because it's been so long. In the Torah 101 podcast, which is a different podcast, this is the Parsha podcast. But as you know, I'm the fortunate or sometimes unfortunate, host of six different podcast shows. And one of them is called Torah 101, an intellectual's introduction to Torah. And that is designated, that's designed to address all the fundamental, philosophical, theological, eschatological principles and underpinnings of Torah. Who wrote the Torah? Where did it come from? Is it divine? What's the evidence? How do we know it's true? What about Bible criticism? Why do bad things happen to good people? All these questions of Torah and science. And right now we are in the middle of the 13 principles of faith. And we just spent four episodes talking about the nature of the soul and the transposition of the soul and what makes a Jewish soul unique. What are the unique markers of the Jewish soul? And this is all based upon, you know, the sources, going through these fundamental subjects very rigorously. And I implore you, I encourage you, if you have not sampled that show, that is some mind-blowing stuff. And the 13th, 30 principles of faith as codified by the Rambam, of course, are the infrastructure, the architecture of what we believe. Principle number 11, which is the one that we are up to in that podcast, talks about the afterlife. And we are doing some really interesting explorations about these fundamental topics in that show, and I encourage you to check it out. But one of the things that we're about to talk about is scriptural sources for Olam Abba. One of the big questions that people ask is, wait a minute, how come the Torah does not explicitly talk about what happens after you die? The mitzvahs are all what we're supposed to do in this world. And the reward, or most of the references to reward for mitzvahs, 
talk about reward in this world you'll have prosperity and your your kids will flourish and you'll have stability and peace and things will be swell for you in this world what about the afterlife how come there are no scriptural attestations to the afterlife so according to rashi we actually have a source right over here Rashi is telling us that when the verse tells us that you do mitzvos and you will get life, it's referring to life in Olam Abba, and thus, according to Rashi, we have a scriptural source for the idea of Olam Abba. Incidentally, in our parasha, the Ramban actually brings a second source. This is in chapter 18, verse 29. The verses are talking about all the various crimes that render a person's soul cut off from its people. And the Ramban says, well, this is actually proof positive, scriptural proof for the afterlife in scripture, because if the verse talks about you do a sin, your soul gets cut off, and it's cut off for eternity, that implies that if you don't do that sin, the soul, in fact, lives for eternity. The soul is eternal, and unless there's a reason for it to be cut off, and be destroyed for eternity, it will, in fact, endure for eternity. So there are two sources of fact in our parsha. It's not quite explicit, but heavily implied in Scripture that, in fact, there is an afterlife and it is sanctioned by Scripture. But regardless, back to our original verse. The verse says, you do the mitzvot and you guard the statutes and you adhere to the laws, you will get life. And Rashi in a stance is first saying that you will have life. What kind of life? In Omaba. And in fact, maybe we could even say that there is no added life in this world for mitzvos, and therefore it makes a lot of sense that you would not see drastic life expectancy differences between those who adhere to the Torah and those who ignore it. According to Rashi, there is no replication crisis. I saw another really interesting approach. I would say this is like an added wrinkle to what Rashi is telling us. This is courtesy of the Sfasemis. He tells us that man is condemned to die. Like we said earlier, even if you live to 100 years old, death is the destiny of all of humanity. And our sages tell us that this is actually the legacy of the sin of Adam. Prior to his sin, he was destined to live forever when he was still in the garden. But thanks to his sin, death is now a necessary component of the human experience. So everyone is listening to this. I hate to break this to you. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Don't shoot the messenger. You will die at some point. Maybe within five years, maybe within 50 years, maybe within 500 years. But you're not going to live forever. Scary thought. Why is humanity condemned to die? Why is the only way forward after the sin of Adam? Why does that necessitate death? So the Ramchal, amongst others, they explain that ever since the sin of Adam, we are tasked with the rectification of the sin of Adam. And part of that rectification is only achieved with death. And therefore, we all have to go through that crucible in order to be able to achieve our perfection. But what happens when Adam's sin is totally rectified? When the purpose of this world has been accomplished, Adam's sin has been fixed. 
Well, that world is known as Olmaba. And of course, Olmaba is preceded with the resurrection of the dead. More about how that works in part five of my new book, Upon a Ten Stringed Harp. So with the rectification of sin of Adam, there is this resurrection, and that goes to the eternal life of Olmaba. And the way that's accomplished, how do we fix the sin of Adam? What are the means through which we can bring about this world of life that has no death? That's Torah and mitzvahs. And thus, that's the meaning behind this verse. This wonderful verse, the verse that we all have tremendous affinity towards now. You do the mitzvahs, you do the Torah, you fix the sin of Adam. And as a result of that, you will live, you will have eternal life. Torah and mitzvahs cause the total life of Omaba, the total defeat of mortality. So again, it's an, it's an extension of, of what Rashi is saying, but not just as a means of reward. You get the reward in Omaba, the life in Omaba, the eternal life of Omaba. That's the reward for all those mitzvahs. There's a deeper point here that, that Torah mitzvahs, they're actually going to contribute towards the defeat of death. I want to suggest another approach to understand this verse. And I'm going to share with you now one of those ideas that once you hear it, you can't stop thinking about it. It's one of those ideas that just reverberate through you and, like I said at the onset, change your life. I think I have evidence that Torah gives life in this world as well. Rashi told us that, well, you do the mitzvot, you follow the Torah, you follow the instructions and the statutes and the laws, you get life. Well, that's not referred to life in this world, says Rashi. It's referred to life in the afterlife, in all my because in this world, well, you die. I have proof, incontrovertible proof, indubitable proof, that Torah gives life in this world. Chapter 6 of Perkyavos, of Ethics, Chapters of the Fathers. And incidentally, again, to add one more plug, in one of our podcasts called The Ethics Podcast, we go through every citation of the Book of Ethics. And we're almost up to this part in Chapter 6, which is the final chapter of Perkyavos. So give that a listen to if you have not yet sampled that. But in Chapter 6 of Perkyavos, we read the following. Gedola Torah. Torah is great. Shehino senes chayim laoseh. That it gives life to those who do it. Ba'olam hazeh uba'olam haba. In this world and in the next world. So the mission tells us explicitly that part of the life-giving power of Torah is that it bestows life upon those who do it in this world and in the next world. So what is this life that Torah bestows upon those who do it in this world? Again, the replication crisis is back. We don't see a difference in life between those who obey the Torah and those who neglect it. What does it mean that someone who does the mitzvahs who follows the Torah, they have life in this world? So I want to suggest a new approach. And we'll start with the following question. 
How many people are currently alive on Earth? So last night, I googled this question, and the answer that I got was 7.9 billion people. The world population as of 424-2022 was 7.939 billion people. And on average, there are about 380,000 births per day and 166 deaths per day. So the population of the world is growing a little more than 200,000 people per day. Now, this is a tricky question. It's a trick question because I asked how many people are alive currently on earth. That does not include the seven people currently alive on the International Space Station. So the correct answer would be 7.9 billion plus seven. Is that right? I want to be, we want to be precise here. We don't want to just ballpark things. We want to be precise. Now on earth, would that include the couple of million people who are airborne on airplanes at any given time? Are they on earth or are they not on earth? On one hand, well, they're not really on terra firma. They're not touching the ground, but they're still part of the atmosphere. So what would you say? Are they on earth or are they not on earth? So I don't know. We have to, we have to leave that to the experts to say, but we could give an answer. How many people alive today on earth? Around eight billion, a little bit less than eight billion. If you count the people that are dead, what's that number? Something like, a hundred plus billion people. Of course, that's a, that's a harder number, even more hard number to determine with accuracy. So we have around eight billion people alive today, a hundred plus billion people that were alive at one point. But here's a tougher question. Even Google doesn't know the answer. How many mosquitoes are alive today? How many worms? are alive today? How many fruit flies are alive today? I actually did not Google this, but I would imagine that Google doesn't know. Only God knows the precise answer to this unusual question. Now, why is that something we know less about? I think there are a lot of reasons why, but of course, when we think of the world, we think of humans as being important, being consequential. And the animals, well, not as important. And it doesn't really matter how many animals there are, or at least it doesn't matter to the same degree as the number of humans. Now think about this question. You know, people struggle with the idea of us killing animals. If you're wearing leather shoes or a leather belt, you're one of those cool people of a leather jacket. Or if you consume meat like 94% of Americans. Or if you have fur, fur coat. You're an accomplice to the murder, the killing of animals for the benefit of humanity. We implicitly view humans as being more important than animals. But Why? Why indeed are humans more important than animals? After all, animals, well, they're also alive. And we know that animals have feelings 
and they have emotions, and they procreate, why do we inherently prioritize humans over animals? This may be a hard question for an atheist to answer. You know, why are humans objectively, morally more important than animals? Is it just, you know, the law of the jungle, dog eat, dog world, survival of the fittest? It's a hard question to answer for the atheist. But we have an easy answer. We say that the Almighty created the world and the purpose of the world is humanity. We are the only hybrid creations. We have the body and the soul. As a result, we're the only creations that have free will. We are the only creations that have the capacity of spiritual dynamism. We can become greater than angels. See, of course, Moshe, Abraham, etc. Or we can become worse than the cruelest beast. And all that capacity exists within mankind to the exclusion of every other thing, both those above us, so to speak, spiritually, and those below us. So why are humans superior? We would say, well, the purpose of the world, the reason why God created the world is for humanity. And specifically for humanity to have an arena in which to exercise their free will, to make choices, to have the capacity to earn eternal reward or punishment, to have the capacity to create the destiny of their choosing. That's why God created the world, and therefore that is fulfilled only by humans, and therefore humans are superior to any other creation. Moreover, we say that God created the world to create a partnership, a partnership with humanity. God seeds some control of existence to us. We have a seat at the table with God to determine the direction of existence. What happens in the world? What happens to humanity in general, to individuals? Who decides? Well, of course, as believers, we say, God decides. But he gives us a say as well. So if someone is sick and they're teetering between life and death and one of two things are going to happen, they're either going to die or they're going to be healed. Who determines the fate of the ill? So we believe that, of course, God's in control, but we pray to heal the sick. If we pray, if we invest our energy, if we take the power given to us, accorded to us by God as a partner of God, and we say we're going to invest everything to make sure that the person pulls through, then they will pull through. If we neglect to pray, then they will die. Our prayer matters. We have a seat at the table. We are partners with God. Of course, there are some times where even if we pray and turn over the entire world, it won't work, even though that's a debatable question, because there seems to be ample evidence that there's nothing, literally nothing, that cannot be achieved with prayer, though it may take 500 and something amounts of prayer with great intensity. It may take a lot, 
but everything is accessible with prayer. Why? Because our prayer matters. Prayer is us deploying the great power extended to us by God. We are his partners. We matter more than anything else. The Mishnah tells us, every person has to say, the world was created for me. And that means that everything was created to service me because I have the ability to make choices. I'm a human. Nothing else is a human. And if I'm really alive, I'm alive and living the purpose of creation. And everything else is just the environment. Why were we created? We were created to live. Why did they might create everything else? Why are there a trillion different species of animals and the stars and the galaxies and the constellations? There's this whole rich world, this rich universe full of a great many things, not just humanity. And of course, the answer is we were created to achieve or to fulfill the purpose of creation. They were created to create the arena in which humanity can exist and have their richly consequential life. That is the environment in which we are placed in order to create the possibilities for us to have choices and to deploy our free will and our great power and partnership with God. Everything else that God created in the world, everything besides for us, besides for humanity, are there to service us to provide the environment in which we can fulfill the purpose of creation. And therefore, we believe that humans are objectively superior to animals because we are the goal of existence, and they're not the goal. They're there to service that goal. The purpose of life, of creation, is humanity. The environment for the life of humans, that is created by everything else. So if you look at the Genesis chronology, Talmud points out, that Adam, mankind, they are created last in the story of creation. All the way at the end of day six. Why was Adam created last? Says the Talmud, Adam is the purpose of creation. And therefore, first you create the arena. First you create the environment. And only then do you begin the show. The way the Talmud analogizes it, is that if you want to make a wedding, you want to make a feast, a banquet, before you invite the guests, you make sure that everything gets set up and all the tables and all the food and all the catering and all the hard work is done ahead of time. Of course, the purpose is the party, is the celebration that is to be enjoyed by the guests. So the creations of day one and day two and day three and day four and day five and most of day six, that's creating the environment. And then once everything else is created, the Almighty creates Adam. That's the purpose. And the purpose lives in the environment of everything else that's created to facilitate that purpose. So man's the purpose. And first you build the arena. And when the environment, the arena, the furniture is in place, the feature presentation can commence. So here's the terrifying idea that's hard to stop to think about. Not all living humans are equally alive by the definitions of the Torah. 
some humans are also part of that environment. They're part of the arena. They're the furniture that's there to facilitate the free will of other people. So let me give you an example. The Talmud tells us in the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b, that on Rosh Hashanah, there are three books open before God. In one book are the completely righteous people and they're signed right away to life. In the second book are the completely wicked people and they're signed right away to death. And then all the in-betweeners, all the half and halves, all the average people, they are put into a third book. And that third book is held in limbo until Yom Kippur where their fate will be determined. If they repent, then they will be signed to life, and if not, they are signed to death. And the question that everyone asks on this Talmud is, wait a minute, if someone's completely wicked, then their fate is to die, and that should happen right on Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, you would expect that all the wicked people would die every Rosh Hashanah. And you'd have this big spike in mortality, all-cause mortality. It would happen right on Rosh Hashanah. And again, replication crisis, we don't seem to see any evidence of that. Why are the wicked not dropping like flies on Rosh Hashanah? And the answer is that they do. (laughs) They do! What would happen if Rosh Hashanah time, all the wicked just die instantly? What happens then? You're at shul and you're hanging out with all your friends and then they blow the shofar and half the shul, half the congregation dies right away on the spot. The verdict is sealed. They're dead. What would happen next? The free will, that's the purpose of the world. Well, that would be tampered. Because no one could could question the dominion of God when you see his justice meted out in front of your eyes. So if the guy to your right, the guy to your left, the people around you, if just half of them just die instantly in Rosh Hashanah, your free will has been compromised. So what happens? They do die. But they're kept alive like the animals and the stars and the angels and the constellations and the mosquitoes and the fruit flies. They're kept alive to create the arena, to create the environment, to be the furniture in the world of the people that are actually living. They're kept alive to benefit to service the humans that are living actual life. So when you look and see people, and they all look equally alive to you, our sages are telling us that there are two kinds of life. There are people that are actually alive, living for the purpose that that God created the world for. Having that spiritual dynamism where every action matters where they're determining what's going to happen with the world. They're partners with God. They have a seat at the table. They're like Adam. Everything is in their hands. They're actually living. 
And then you have the other people who are alive only because if they were dead, it would impinge, it would encroach upon the free will of those who are living. And of course, we don't have the tools to see who's actually alive and who's just a non-player character in the game of life. But this is a terrifying idea. Man is the purpose of creation. And thus only man can be considered truly alive, fulfilling the purpose of creation. Everything else is, is preparatory. Everything else is facilitatory. Everything else is just there to facilitate the man has an arena for free will. Even, even the angels, who are loftier than us, at least by default, they don't have free will, and they're created to have that, that part of the arena. So there are two kinds of creations. There's everything, and that's just the setting, the environment, the furniture, the arena. And then there's man. And man is truly alive. And now we have discovered that even humans, even homo sapiens, can be part of the arena. Yes, they're breathing. Yes, their heart is pumping. Yes, they seem to be equally as alive as everyone else. But by the Torah's definition, they are dead because they are no longer part of the populace who are consequential. You know, we're told in the Torah, every deed that you do is pregnant with supreme importance. If you study Torah, you're upholding the whole world. If there's a second without Torah study, the world will be completely destroyed. And every day we have to pray three times. You pray for your health and for food and stability and peace and wisdom every day. And your prayer determines what happens to you. The Talmud tells us you can't eat before you pray. In the morning you wake up, you got to pray first. And then you eat. Says the Talmud, don't eat before you pray for your blood. Are you going to live out the day or are you not going to live out the day? Got to pray. Pray for your blood. Pray for your life. Pray like your life depends upon it, and then you can have breakfast. Without prayer, you are doomed. Our sages tell us that we have to view ourselves as if we're exactly half-half, half-righteous, half-wicked. And the whole world is exactly half-half. And your next action determines your fate and the fate of all of existence. You get to determine what happens to every one and everything. That's what we're told. Everything's consequential. Everything matters. Everything's supremely important. Every choice they make really reverberates throughout the entire worlds, not just our world, but all the upper realms and upper spheres and all the angels are looking to see what you're going to do. And you carry within you this great power to determine what happens to existence. That's what we're told in the Torah. And of course, the overwhelming majority of humanity knows nothing of this. And they seem to be totally fine. They prosper. They seem to be healthy. And they're totally oblivious of everything we're talking about. The answer is, the explanation is, this idea that every action you do matters. And you're so important that you're fulfilling the, the goal of creation. And you're alive by the standards of the Torah. That's not evenly distributed. Not everyone is actually living by the Torah's standards. Only the righteous are actually living. Only they have a stake 
in humanity in actualizing the world's goal. Only if they are partners with God. Some humans, nominally alive, are not alive by this standard. They're part of the arena. They're part of the environment. They are the furniture for free will to be exercised by others. They are non-player characters in the game of life. Back to our verse. The verse that we have affinity for, growing affinity for. How does someone make sure that they are part of the consequential humans? Not just furniture for the consequential humans. Ushmartemis Kukosai, guard my statutes and my laws. Asher Yaseo Samadam Vechaibahem. You want life? You want to be a stakeholder? You want to be someone like Adam whose deeds and action and life matters? Torah and mitzvos, they catapult a person into the spiritual realm and they give man life of the highest magnitude. Now, I will tell you something interesting. This is my own theory. We say in our prayers many times a day, three times a day at least, that God resurrects the dead. This is the second blessing of the 18 blessings that we And five times throughout this blessing, we talk about God reviving the dead, resurrecting the dead. And in almost all of those instances, it's talking about in present tense. Which means God is actively reviving the dead, resurrecting the dead. Only once does this prayer, does this blessing, refer to the future tense, you will revive the dead. Now, I was always taught that sometime in the future, the money will revive the dead. The prayer that we say, the blessing we say multiple times a day says that God is actively reviving the dead. What does that mean? Perhaps we can suggest that by the Torah's definition of life, it means you're living for the purpose of creation, which means great responsibility and great power. Great responsibility because your actions determine the fate of everything. Great power because you have the ability to influence everything. You have a seat at the table. You're a partner with God. That is life. And there are humans walking amongst us who appear just to us to be completely alive, but by this standard, they're just, they're not. And yes, they can prosper even without prayer because again, their, their prayer is not correlated. Their prayer is being decoupled from their outcomes because they're only living to facilitate the free will of everyone else. So the people that are nominally alive by our standards, in God's eyes, they're dead. But even those non-player characters, it's possible for them to be reanimated. The furniture can be reanimated. It can come back alive. And that's what we pray for every day. In the event that we slip and we fall, and we become part of those NPCs, non-player characters, and we're part of the furniture of the environment, the arena, we're praying 
revive us. We want to matter. We want to live. We want to be consequential. We want to have a stake in the great experiment of humanity. We want to be part of the purpose of the world. We want to sit at the table. We want to be partners with God. And of course, that, you know, that puts a lot of responsibility on our shoulders. But that's what we want. We don't want to be the furniture of the environment for others to live in. We want to live for the ultimate purpose. How do we gain consequential life? Guard the statutes, follow the laws. Torah and mitzvos are the tickets of admission. Okay, let's get to this week's exquisite insight. Now, this relates to our parsha, but it really relates to every parsha. I think it also particularly relates to what we just spoke about. I had an amazing conversation with a friend of mine in our shul here in Houston. There's an old friend of mine. Uh, he grew up also in the Northeast. And uh, he lives here. And he's a big guy. And he's a really good friend of mine. And occasionally, you know, we had our parents here for Pesach, but his parents come also and his, his siblings, he's a big family, part of a big family. And they come to visit often. And last time his family was here, his brother was here. And, you know, my friend's a big guy. He's tall. He's big. And his brother is kind of short. And there's, there's lots of boys in the family. And the dad's kind of short. He's not really tiny, but he's not tall at all. He's on the short end. You know, the average American male is, I don't know, what, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, something like that. He's maybe 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, and the guy who lives in our neighborhood is a big, big, tall guy. And all of his brothers are small. Again, not tiny, but below average. So I said to him, I said, yeah, your brother's here, dad's here, brothers are visiting, and they're all short, and you're so tall. What's the secret? What happened over here? What did they feed you? Was it just all the, you know, the grass-fed milk and all that free-range chickens? What happened over here? How come you're so tall against the uh, the genetics of the family? So it was just, this was some chit-chat before davening. And he told me something that's unbelievable. This is like life-changing stuff. He said when he was a kid, he was short. And all his friends would tease him. They'd all tease him. And he said to me, listen to this. He said every single night, as a kid, for years, every single night as he was falling asleep, he prayed to the Almighty in English, the way I always encourage everyone to pray to God. He just spoke to the Almighty. It says, please make me six feet tall. Please make me six feet tall. Every single night. And when he finished his growth spurt, he tells me, he's like, I measure exactly six feet and zero inches. Exactly. He asked to be six foot tall and he got what he asked for. Again, his, his genes just, they just, they just aren't there. But so what? It doesn't matter. Because the Almighty, of course, he has, you have a seat at the table. You could pray and you could ask for what you want. And if you ask for what you want, most likely you will get it. 
Exactly. Unbelievable story. This is someone that I know. And again, you look at the family photos, it's, it's really odd because he's, he's tall. He's not, you know, he's not massive, six feet tall, above average. Everyone else is below average. And he's the only one. And what happened? He just prayed. And the Almighty elongated him, stretched him out, made him nice and tall. Exactly. He says six, six feet, zero inches, not a smidgen more, not a smidgen less. He says, ah, should have asked to be six foot two. Okay. But to me, this is, this is like a, Life-changing story. You know, we, we view our, our religion as being very, you know, lots of rituals and dogma, very ceremonial. Why do we do this? Everything's, everything's, everything's done because of a reason, but we, we have to follow the rules. We have a direct access line to God. We have a relationship with the Almighty, with the creator of heaven and earth. And who knows how many things, if we just ask God for it, and of course, we have to be sincere. They're all the prerequisites for prayer. But if we just ask God for what we want, we'll get it. You know, past couple of weeks, one of the groups that I meet with, we meet every Wednesday night, and uh, we tried something out a couple of weeks ago. It was really a life-changing experience for me. We were talking about prayer. Does prayer work? Does prayer not work? What's the point of prayer? It was a very long conversation, very interesting and uh, animated conversation. And we agreed to try something, an experiment for a week. For a week. Experiment of talking to God, just laying out your, your issues. You know, we, we all have issues. We're all going through a crisis of some sort. There's always a crisis happening because life is supposed to be dynamic. Every day for a week. Try this out. This is what, this is what we did for a week. Every, every, every day, just talk to God for 10 minutes. So I did this and it was just, I could say legitimately life changing. I would go outside, you know, sit in a, a chair on my driveway and I would just talk to God. And just talk about my, my issues and my challenges. And we all have challenges. And we all have things that we want, that we aspire to. We believe my listens to everything you say. And takes it into account. You have a seat at the table. So I would, this is not even part of my, I was, I was not planning even talking about this. But it reminded me, talking about my friend and this amazing conversation. We could talk to the Almighty. You could talk to the Almighty and he listens. It's an unbelievable thing. And I would even add that if you want to be someone who matters, you want to live a consequential life, one of the ways to do it is to do the mitzvahs of the Torah, like, like the verse tells us. And one of the mitzvahs of the Torah is to talk to God, develop a relationship with the Almighty. So not only is that deploying our superpower, it's enhancing it, or it's even it's unlocking it, developing that power. So I hereby encourage you, the, uh, I don't know, 5% of y'all that are still here, most of you probably just turned it off. Wolby's ranting. Wolby's ranting. We got to stop it right now. I'll go listen to, I don't know, NPR or something like that. But whoever's still left over here, if there's anyone, if I'm not just speaking to myself and gesticulating wildly here in the Torch Center, if you're still listening, maybe try this out yourself. Now, I would say that 10 minutes turns out is actually fairly long. Maybe do five minutes. But just speak to God. Imagine you have access 
to, to the greatest, really the only power. God can help you with anything that you need. Anything. It could be in business and your relationships and your whatever, your health, everything. Your personal development, your aspirations, your goals. And you could be raw about it. Be real about it. Be sincere about it. Say, hey, I, I'm not happy. Help me. What's going on? Why did you do that to me? It's all fair game. But de-ritualize it. You don't have to get your prayer shawl and chant in Hebrew. None of that. Speak to God as a person speaks to his fellow man. Try it. Who knows what may happen? It may, in fact, radically and dramatically change your life. Maybe we'll be nice and tall and really handsome and really rich and really happy. I hope you get all the blessings in the world. Isn't it great to be back? Isn't it wonderful? Are you as excited as I am? I thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I really do. I really, really do. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic and splendid rest of your day. And wonderful and healthy and robust and strong rest of your week. And a fantastic and splendid and terrific and sensational job is upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.